Welcome to the Matrix Care Podcast from the software leader for out-of-hospital and long-term care. Matrix Care is dedicated to sharing knowledge and empowering providers across the care continuum, including home-based and facility-based care organizations. Today we hear from Naveen Gupta, Senior Vice President of Home and Hospice Division for Matrix Care, and his special guest. Let's dive in. Welcome again to another episode of the Matrix Care Podcast. My name is Naveed Gupta. I'm the Senior Vice President and Division Head for the Home and Hospice Division. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Bill Dombey. Our guest really needs no introduction. Uh, I'm going to introduce him, though. Uh, but before that, I would like to introduce his organization, NAH, or the National Association for Home Care and Hospice. It's a not-for-profit organization and really represents over 33,000 home care and hospice organizations, and they advocate for more than 2 million nurses, therapists, aides, and various other caregivers employed by such organizations and serving a very large population uh, within, within the healthcare system, and really also um, really advocating for uh, a number of people within the system. So really, really happy to have Bill join us. Bill obviously is the president of the association. He serves as the executive director as well for Home Care and Hospice Financial Managers Association. Uh, you know, just even looking at his resume, just filled with his experience within healthcare system and reform. Uh, he's been involved in all kinds of legislative and regulatory efforts impacting home care and hospice since 1975 and just done a ton uh, tons for, for the network. So we are just really, really pleased to have you, Bill. And uh, we've had a few interactions, and I, I would just want to say welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, Naveen. Glad to be here. Bill, and, and I know maybe this is a question you don't get very often, but we'd love for people to get to know you personally a little bit. Uh, we oftentimes talk about an origin story. Many of us that are in healthcare, we've had those sort of pivotal moments in our careers where we've said, you know what, this is for me, and this is where I'd like to be plugged in. Tell, tell our audience a little bit about your journey into healthcare and how did that come about? You know, my origins you know, are easy for me to pinpoint on this. Uh, during law school in the mid 70s, uh, I was invited to rejoin some colleagues at a legal aid program because they wanted me on their softball team. And the work that I did that summer during law school was to focus in on issues of Medicare because we hadn't done much work. You know, legal aid programs represent individuals who are at poverty level of, of subsistence mm -hmm. uh, and Medicare being the largest health insurance company in the world, essentially, you could call it a company of sorts. There wasn't much work that we did. And during that summer, as I investigated Medicare, what stood out for me was home health care. And I traveled all around the state of Connecticut where this work was taking place, meeting with home health agency people. Uh, and this was, like I said, a long time ago, uh, nothing like we, we have today, but it did have one thing that shared with what we have today. The people I met had an incredible passion for what they did in caring for patients. And in meeting patients, it was very clear those patients really wanted to get care at home. Uh, and so it was a, a legal focus, you know, what can we do to help you get benefits kind of thing. But the passion that the people had at the home health agencies and the great desire that their patient population had to stay home with their loved ones easily rubbed off on me. And 
it, during law school, I then created a, an advocacy program for Medicare beneficiaries that, among other things, uh, concentrated a lot on home health care advocacy. You know, we did litigation, we did legislative and regulatory advocacy, and a lot of education around it. And how I got from there to NAC as a beneficiary advocate, well, I, I'd known the president of NAC, the then president of NAC, Val Halmanderas, for a number of years from his time in uh, congressional staff. He was on the Senate and House Aging Committees uh, as chief counsel for many years. And he was then the president of the association and Medicare home health agencies were going through a very difficult time, something which one would have described as the attempted dismantling of the Medicare home health benefit with wow. claim, claim rejections that were, uh, you know, one third of all claims were being retroactively rejected. Val gave me a call and said, could you come on down and meet with our board of directors? We want to talk about a lawsuit against the Medicare program. That was pretty much what, what I did, you know, in my advocacy was sue Medicare. And so I spent the day with, with Val and the board and he then later called me and said, the board decided they want to file a lawsuit and they want you to do it. He explained wow. that he, met, he wanted me to come to Washington and come to work for NAC to file the lawsuit. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. I said, thanks, but no thanks several times over the next week or two, because uh, he was persistent. And I finally said yes, because I realized this guy, Val, was going to do this one way or another, with me or without me. And if he, mm. did, it with, if he did it without me, it was probably going to get screwed up. So my, my ego kind of drove me to say, ultimately, yes. I told my wife, uh, and we had two little kids at the time, that we'd be moving to Washington probably for three or four years. And here we are now, 33, almost 34 years later. And I'm still here, now president of NAC. You know, that passion that drove me in this direction to start with has only increased over time, particularly driven by the fact that home care, hospice, home health agencies, anybody delivering care in the home has exactly what we need in healthcare, which is a patient-centered, patient-first approach. And it turns out that approach is really good for business too. So it's, it's great to do that. So th those, are, those are my origins, but if I wasn't a good softball player, I probably wouldn't be here today. <laughs> well, wow, that was, that was a, just a great story just to hear, you know, as you explained, as you were meeting these home health providers and just in the early stages advocating, certainly a lot has happened since then. And now in, in a role where obviously the passion is very, very evident, even as, you, as we watch you speak in many occasions, obviously, just that, that passion comes across. And that hasn't wavered over all these years as you've been advocating for these agencies and these providers. So just switching gears a little bit, you know, we are of conviction that home is becoming the hub for healthcare. So wanting to really get your point of view on with COVID-19, particularly, you know, with, with the pandemic, how do you see, what are the positive and negative forces that are beginning to shape what healthcare, particularly in post-acute, is going to look like? Well, you know, let, let me actually correct you uh, on one point. We in home care, you know, are trying to get away from the label that we're post-acute, and I think COVID-19 has helped us head in that direction. And uh, that, you know, home care long has been capable in actually providing pre-acute, acute, post-acute, end-of-life care, beginning-of-life care as well, uh, yet we've been often pigeonholed into a post-acute kind of a label, which really ultimately limits it. In COVID-19, we have been able to show in a very, very clear way uh, that, that home care 
know, is a very able, uh, very versatile provider of care in an acute illness of an individual who is, you know, facing the virus that we've been plagued with in this pandemic. Uh, so, you know, when, when we look at what's happened with COVID-19, you know, it, it's often that you'll find in difficult, challenging, even tragic times, some silver linings. And one of those has been the uh, opportunity for the broad breadth of home care to demonstrate its capabilities, you know, whether it be pre-acute, acute, or post-acute, but to demonstrate it in terms of, you know, their, their, their pivoting capability to really take on all new healthcare clinical challenges like COVID-19 while still dealing with normal existing populations. So uh, the silver lining was that, you know, the demand, the pressures on the healthcare system were such that in the past, parties who might not have brought home care into the mix were bringing them in. Hospitals, health systems were bringing them into the mix. And wow, it's just amazing what home care was able to do to demonstrate its capabilities in doing so. So a lot of positive coming out from that kind of an opportunity, you know, to show creativity. You know, the awareness grew uh, of home care, both publicly and within the healthcare world. The value of the care that was being provided started to be understood. Home care is not a cost. Home care is a value. But also one of the other things, and we've been fighting this battle for a long time, home care is not just high touch. It is very, very high tech and has been for quite a few years. And you know, the issues of isolation and trying to prevent transmission of the disease has given home care a great opportunity that they've stepped up and demonstrated they could handle in using such things as telehealth to meet individuals' needs than gaining a a better understanding that home care is both high touch and high tech. So a lot of a lot of those positives come out of a situation which no one would normally think of as a positive. Bill, I, I stand corrected. It's funny you say that. You know, internally we we don't tend to use the term even post-acute within our organization. We call it out of hospital, and our our thinking is that you don't need an acute episode uh, in order to receive care, right? And so uh, it's very valid as you think about keeping people in the home, right? Ability to manage chronic conditions, focus on wellness, for example. Uh, all of that certainly is not naturally supposed to cute. So yeah, I think that is a great distinction. Uh, I think what you're highlighting as well is that during this particular season, the value that the home has created and the ability to deliver care and all of the care coordination and importantly, keep people outside the health systems is it, getting rightfully the focus. Even the, the discussions around uh, sniff at home, for example, facilities have been have been impacted. But but I think from from a home perspective, we're, we're certainly seeing uh, a view where not only that people want to stay in the home, but that, that patient flow can be directed towards the home and keep people healthy and and receive care there. So, very uh, thank thank you for highlighting that. I think that's a, that's a great viewpoint, and I'm hope, hopefully that begins to change the language that we're all using to describe what we do in the home. Yeah, and, and, and I know you, know you know what's going on. You got, you've had at Matrix Care and you yourself have had a, a good level of experience in this. And you know, when, when we look at th this issue, we, we, early on in the pandemic, we started by responding to all that concern about there are no hospital beds available. We'd raise our hands and say, we know where beds are. Yeah. They're in the individual's own home. And then when the you know, infections and the transmissions were accelerating in nursing homes, uh, and they were looking for ways to quarantine and isolate people. We said, we know a very comfortable place to be isolated and quarantined. You know, it's, it's not an institutional care setting. 
So, you know, it, it really gave home care uh, an opportunity you know, to just exponentially kind of grow relative to awareness and appreciation of that kind of value as an option. It's, there are plenty of negatives, you know. We had a lot of issues with protective equipment and issues, yes. you know, uh, about uh, staff uh, concerned about passing on virus or acquiring virus and the like. When you, when you really look at where we are now, you know, six months after, you know, things started to get really out of hand, I think we can all be extraordinarily proud of, of how home care has stepped up. They've been on the front lines, uh, not just doing their part, but doing more than their part in so many ways. And, and I always pause for a moment when I think about this. We have lost lives in, in home care. Uh, you know, staff members of home care co companies all across the country have sacrificed themselves to do something for their patients. And yeah. so if we didn't have passion before, we look at that, we say, boy, those are real heroes. Yeah, you know, Bill, we couldn't agree with you more. We had a, we had a program, you know, over the last uh, several months, really, uh, which we called Nominate a Hero. And we had um, providers really, you know, sharing stories of caregivers going above and beyond really very difficult trying circumstances. As, as you know, early on, obviously PPE was a big challenge. Uh, just delivery of care was challenging, but the, the, yet there were folks that just rose to the occasion and, and, uh, and were able to really meet the needs of the community. So it, it truly, truly resonates uh, with us. Uh, what the pandemic has also done is, is certainly driven a focus on, on telehealth. So obviously the flexibilities uh, during this public health emergency that CMS provided, telehealth RPM visits, et cetera. Certainly there are proposed rules as well. There's no reimbursement tied to it. Obviously that, that increases LUPA episodes. Um, there's some, obviously from a hospice point of view with, with routine visits, et cetera. Just curious to get your viewpoint on how do you see this evolving? Where is Congress headed with it? And uh, you know, will some of these uh, COVID-19 responses be made permanent? Yeah, you know, if I look at telehealth generally, you know, I'm looking at, say, four phases that might have been going on within Congress and in the minds of regulators. I remember early on, and it was maybe the first week of March, I had a conversation with Seema Verma, uh, the head of CMS, about telehealth and home health care. And she, she said, we are beginning to think, and we'd like you to think along with us, on what are the things we're doing you know, on telehealth and waivers that we should be making permanent. So early on in the process, people were asking the question, what should we make permanent? And telehealth was first on the list. That was like phase one. And then it moved to some further thinking about what is it that they are doing? Because they opened up so many telehealth opportunities for physicians and hospitals and nurse practitioners and therapists and even flexibilities for home health agencies and hospices. So they started reflecting a bit on where they are, and, and that was the next phase within Congress and in the regulators. They're like, not just have some knee-jerk reaction, positive or negative, but it had been leaning very, very positive. And then they moved to the next, that, that next phase, which was, okay, like any healthcare program, we need some guardrails. Sure, uh, we don't have abuses. And just yesterday, there was a, a SWAT team of sorts on the Medicare fraud, Medicare Medicaid fraud side that has arrested several hundred people in a teledoc telehealth fraud scheme. They're focusing in on these kinds of technology-related scams that are happening now. It had to do with medical equipment and, and prosthetic and other kinds of prescriptions 
you know, the allegations, you know, would make you wince in reading them. The guardrail discussion, you know, certainly is, is timely. And now we're seeing what's happening in the conversations we're having with CMS, with the Congress is, okay, what of the telehealth activities that have gone on do we select to make permanent that we need to make a part of the future of healthcare services? And obviously, you know, we're telling, you know, thanks for the work you did in home care, but you didn't do enough. You know, we, we, we said you didn't do enough months ago. You still haven't done enough. Uh, so please do something about it. Uh, we actually expect in, in this first week, first few days of October before Congress goes out on recess, that there will be legislation introduced that will create the authority for CMS to actually pay for telehealth to home health agencies. There is a pretty black and white roadblock in the law now. And you know, it, clearly it's not going to be passed you know, with a snap of the fingers, but we needed to get this out there so it can be moved along. So that, that's where, where we see it at this point is, you know, we have a voice on the guardrails. We have a voice on what should be made permanent. And we also then want a voice on what should still be improved on the telehealth side. I'm convinced that the future in home health care and in hospice is much brighter if the restrictions on telehealth do not get restored. And in fact, the ability to use it gets expanded. Uh, not that it will ever replace in-person. Telehealth is wonderful, but it's a tool. Uh, just like I referred this to other people too. I've got a really nice set of tools in my workshop down in the basement. Uh, and uh, what it needs me to make those screwdrivers, hammers, yeah. tools, and everything else actually accomplish something, just like telehealth needs nurses, therapists, and other healthcare clinicians to, to make that tool valuable. I am cautiously optimistic. Okay. Uh, at the same time, I, I do reflect on you know the experiences I've had over the years. Uh, the sponsor of this legislation that I mentioned is uh, the lead sponsor is going to be Senator Susan Collins. Uh, and he was also our lead sponsor on legislation to allow non-physician practitioners, NPs and PAs, to certify Medicare home health eligibility. Mm -hmm. she, she first introduced that law, you know, we were partnering with her, I wrote it actually, uh, in 2007. Uh, through her advocacy during the CARES Act discussions this March, she got it in there finally. It took 13 years. I hope we don't have to go through anything like that again. In 13 years, I hope that you know we'll be doing holographic conferences <laughs> at NAC rather than having to do virtual one-dimensional, two-dimensional events. Yeah, I, well, uh, the pace of with, with the pace with which technology is moving, you're certainly right. But I'm 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 also very optimistic. I think we talk to providers all the time. I'm I'm talking to um, you know leaders. Uh, home health hospice leaders on, on almost on a weekly basis and really questions around telehealth inevitably come up and many of them have programs in place um, you know certainly they would they would like reimbursements tied to it so video health you know rpm uh, telehealth all of that will will it's just becoming much more pronounced and again some some sort of action around that i think will be will be really helpful the, the other trend bill is um, the the medicare advantage carve in with regards to hospice Certainly, you know, the, the shift from fee-for-service to, to MA plans as, as the beneficiaries are, are moving. CMS just announced, you know, all, just a week or so ago about the, the nine MA plans that will be participating in some of this. You know, what, what is your viewpoint on this? Um, what should, how do you see this evolving? Is this a good or bad thing? 
just curious to get a viewpoint on and, and what should people be paying attention with this? The timing of this question is, is, is notable because yesterday I was on a call with many of the officials at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovations about the VBID carbon demonstration program. Yes. They are moving ahead. Early on when this first came uh, out for consideration some years ago with MedPAC recommendations, and then when CMMI indicated they were going to establish a demonstration program, uh, we've made it very clear we, we think it's a bad idea. Mm. Uh, and we asked a question which still to date has not been answered of, what are you trying to fix? <laughs> you know, what are your goals is the second question. And, and so on from there, because, you know, the, the delivery of services at end of life really shouldn't be subject to too much experimentation. And unless you are absolutely sure, you know, what's broken, what needs to be repaired, what needs to be improved, then you're taking a chance on people where you, you can't go fix it after the fact. You know, if you make, if you make a mistake on somebody who's at end of life, I, I look at what CMMI is doing you know, as a fun experiment for them, but is it, is it a sensible one for the Medicare beneficiary population? But it is moving forward. And, you know, we are gonna be ever vigilant in monitoring it and helping to direct them to try to fix things as they go wrong. But in, in the call yesterday, it, it sounds like they're taking out a car for a test drive and they're not sure whether the wheels will stay on. And wow. they're worried about whether the wheels fall off after they fall off. And that, that's, that's fine if you're a scientist in a laboratory doing an experiment and, and, and nobody gets hurt as a result of it. But we, we remain extraordinarily concerned about the carbon. Uh, I mean, some of the statistics stand out. I mean, more than half of the people who are going into hospice are coming from Medicare Advantage plans now. So it doesn't sound like there's any barriers to care you know, or an awareness of what it can do. So and I go back to, you know, the offer before, just a constant refrain or something, but tell us what your goals are. Tell us what you're trying to fix. Uh, and, and we are continually left with the impression that what they're simply trying to do is shift as many of the Medicare patient population to Medicare Advantage by every means possible. And Medicare Advantage may fit some people extraordinarily well. Some of the plans may be really exceptionally good, but it doesn't fit everybody. And it doesn't solve all problems either. It sometimes creates problems. So where's it going at this point? It's on this shakedown cruise. It'll start next year now that these plans have accepted it. We've had many discussions with members of Congress about this, and they first were saying, oh, we'll stop it, we'll stop it. Then they kind of said, well, it is only a demonstration program. You know, it's like, well, you know, slippery slopes, you know, are, are what we're concerned about here on this so, like I said, we are going to be watching this as carefully as possible to make sure that whatever goes wrong gets fixed, but that people still ask that question, what are you trying to fix here? There are a lot of questions beyond that, you know, with unknowns that we have here going on. We also raise the question, is this really the time to start a whole new experiment? Yeah. In the middle of a you know, pandemic, a public health emergency? You know, so... Uh, you know, maybe a sign of that is the tepid interest that the plans uh, have shown. I mean, you know, there, there are lots and lots of plans and only a few who've stepped up on this. It's, just, it's a very small handful, Bill, and I, 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 I like what you said. It, it's, it's a matter of really watching the adoption and, and the implications from it as well. 
And we have no idea who is going to be running CMMI next year either. It could be, you know, all determined after the election on that. So right. do, do you want to start this journey only for it to be interrupted by a new administration? You know, uh, that's just, it, it, the timing just doesn't make sense right now. There certainly is a lot going on. Um, the other related topic, you know, is, is, is palliative care. It, it's certainly, you know, 50% of hospices or so are doing some sort of palliative care program. It's, it's shown to provide big savings downstream in terms of, in terms of healthcare. We're aware CMS is, is testing various palliative care models, but do you think a standard palliative care benefit pay, payment model, I mean, it doesn't exist right now. Do you think that that emerges? What is your viewpoint on this? Well, you know, I, I think that's got to be considered. When we look at palliative care, you know, you see a fairly large universe of need for palliative care. Mm -hmm. and, and that hospice fits into a part of that universe. Home health fits into a part of that universe. They may actually overlap and intersect in that universe, but there are also parts of that universe that would fit into other healthcare sectors, physician-oriented activities, even inpatient services. We come from the perspective that palliative should be part of every element of healthcare. Yes. You know, so uh, it, it would be quite difficult, perhaps, to develop a comprehensive palliative care benefit, but you can certainly see the, the parts of palliative care that need to be addressed and, and need to be addressed soon. Those patients who are at end of life, say, but not yet ready for hospice, and those people at end of life who are not ever gonna choose hospice, but also those people who are looking for cures, looking for a comfortable recovery of their needs. We've got two things that are going on right now, and we think they have some traction. One of them is has actually been in place at some home health agencies for a while, where the existing home health benefit is being used to provide palliative care in the community. You have to meet the same standard, homebound, skilled nursing or therapy services, you know, in right. order to qualify for the individual, but there are a lot of skilled palliative care services that nurses and therapists can provide. And the reason we're going down that path is you don't need Congress to be involved in it. We don't need then the Congressional Budget Office to calculate how much will it cost, which always ends up creating barriers. Instead, we need a little bit of clarification in the Medicare coverage standards, and then the contractors can work with the providers to make it happen. So we've worked to redraft the Medicare manual uh, instructions on this and regulations to be able to really make it overt within the benefit as compared to, you know, question marks for everybody. And the same is true on, on the, say, the pre-hospice side. Uh, you know, we've put proposal together in collaboration with NHPCO and a hospice coalition on a community-based palliative care program. So we, we think, you know, COVID-19 connects to it, but, you know, after a pandemic, it still has incredible importance. But I think, you know, the, the atmosphere on palliative care in Washington, D.C. is in the best position that it's ever been. So strike while the iron's hot, they say. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great viewpoint. You know, we, we, we are very bullish on how we see providers embracing palliative care. Uh, and um, so it's great just to hear some progress around that, Bill. Bill, uh, I'm, I'm going to just, um, you know, want to just begin to wrap up. So just curious to get on, you know, are there any other thoughts that you'd like to share? Obviously, you know, providers, we've got thought leaders within the industry that will be listening in. Are there any other viewpoints from, from NAF that you, you would like to share before we wrap up? Yeah, let me just try to give you a quick outline of those. You know, I mentioned you know, so much focus on COVID-19, but a lot of the business as usual is going on. And so, I mean, we're focused on 
payment rules, the MedPAC recommendations, you know, the reinstitution of some of the oversight measures, review choice demonstration program, for example. You know, those may be somewhat quiet at this point, but as we find our way through this pandemic, they will surface. MedPAC, as usual, recommending rate cuts. MedPAC, as usual, making reform recommendations, such like in hospice, uh, with reducing the cap, mm -hmm. uh, and then the unified post-acute care payment model movement that's happening. So there, there is a lot that's only in a little bit of a pause right now, so because of the concentration of efforts around there, but we, we are actively involved in all of those matters. We certainly hope uh, the rest of the home care and hospice community is too, but we're going to be asking you also to get behind our effort. You mentioned it earlier on, Naveen, which is a skilled nursing facility at home. We have designed a, a, a new benefit to go into the Medicare program. We've had a lot of congressional socializing about it, as we call it. Uh, we've even drafted the legislative language. Give people who would otherwise qualify for the Medicare skilled nursing facility benefit yes. an opportunity yes. to go home, more resources available uh, to the home health agency to provide care, and particularly personal care services, but much more than that. And of course, uh, you know, a, appropriate reimbursement to cover that higher cost but with a design that still saves the Medicare program a lot of money. Yes. Uh, and, and so this, you know, from the innovation side of it, this is also keyed off by COVID-19 because people don't want to be in those skilled nursing facilities as they might have in the past. Well, you know, we, 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 we certainly talking to, um, you know, our, our agencies talking about a sniff at home program. Obviously, as you talk about, there is no, no program from a reimbursement perspective, but again, innovation around, how do, you, how do you recreate the 24-7 care, combination of clinical care, personal care services? How do you allow technology to coordinate, right, from a discharge with HME, DMEs, bring all of that and sort of recreating? And more importantly, more comfort being in the home. Um, so I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of new opportunities that are opening up now for care delivery, for keeping people healthy and, and making sure that they can receive good care in the home. Thank you, Bill, for all that you do. Thank you for being a friend. For matrix care, you know, your advocacy, thinking about the caregivers, the providers. Uh, it's certainly, there's a rapid acceleration happening right now uh, in healthcare, and uh, this is a great time to, to be in the mix of being able to bring solutions to the market. So, Bill, thank you again, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Naveen. That concludes today's episode brought to you by Matrix Care. We hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to visit us at matrixcare.com for more information on our solutions and services. Please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and leave a review if you enjoyed this episode or have other topics you'd like to hear discussed. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook to hear more from Matrix Care. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.